0: Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love all things bookish. Today, I am interviewing one of my very favorite authors, Elise Hooper. A native New Englander, Elise spent several years writing for television and online news outlets before getting an MA and teaching high school literature and history. She now lives in Seattle with her husband and two daughters. Today, Elise is joining me to talk about her latest novel, Fast Girls. I'm glad you are listening, and I really hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Elise. How are you today?
1: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Cindy.
0: I'm so glad to have you. I read an early copy of Fast Girls, and I just loved it. I've included it in several roundups and have been recommending it to everyone I know.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: Why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Well, Fast Girls follows three athletes, Betty Robinson, Louise Stokes, and Helen Stevens. These are three women, all from the 1920s and 30s, who went on to become unexpectedly, I should add, track champions. And this book covers their rise into running, and it it goes over three different Olympics, the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam, 1932 in Los Angeles, and then sort of the big one that's famous because of Boys in the Boat and Unbroken, 1936 in Berlin, under Hitler's watchful gaze. So it really does talk about how uh, 1928 is the first year women were allowed to participate in the Olympics in track and field. Up to that point, they had only been allowed to compete in what were called aesthetic-only events. (laughs) 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 I know. (laughs) And these kind of varied over the years. I mean, kind of sports came and went, but like tennis archery, fencing, sailing, you know, there's a trend here. These were all sports that were kind of really accessible to the upper class. And so track and field was really considered pretty blue collar. And, and even what you see in these 1928 games in Amsterdam is that Women raced in, uh, or competed, I should say, because there was some track and field too, five different events. And some of them were canceled after 1928, because in the 800, for example, a couple of women looked very tired. One even tripped going over the finish because she kind of thrust her chest forward to get through that, that finish line faster. And All of the men, the male reporters there, everyone was so horrified by this look of tired women that they thought, oh my gosh, we cannot have these harder events. So they canceled many of what we now don't even consider distance events. And those don't return until like the 60s in the Olympics. I'm not sure
0: I realized that it had been that long. I mean, I was laughing thinking, oh my gosh, times have changed. But I didn't realize it was that long till they came back. Yes yes. I mean, this was
1: a real, I mean, so something to keep in mind by that is that then a lot of pressure was on these early women racers and they felt it. They really had to kind of represent women and win and kind of set records and and be important. Otherwise, there was constantly the threat that they'd be dropped from the Olympics. In fact, again, after 28, women for a while, the IOC was saying they were going to cancel these women's events entirely. So these Olympians were really hanging on by their fingernails, hoping to remain competitive and in play for future games, but 32 was definitely not a sure thing for a lot of these women. So it was really dicey, and and so it goes. Uh, 1928, and then with 32, we have Louise Stokes, who is out of Malden, Massachusetts. She's she's a black runner, and she is a real trailblazer, along with another woman named Tidy Pickett, who were the first two black women to qualify for the Olympics in 1932 first two of all time. And this happens in 1932. And so these women, they travel to Los Angeles, they had the Olympic trials, and then they get straight on the train to go to the Olympics. There's really no sort of break like there is these days. But back then they, they got straight on this train, they went to LA. And all the while, other white women are being added to what's considered this relay pool. Their coaches were really vocal on their behalf. They had just advocates kind of higher up in sort of the AAU, the American Athletic Union. And so Tidy and Louise start doubting their chances. They start to wonder, Am, are we really going to be allowed given our shot? Because it, it, it was just anything but certain. And, and to the point of even the NAACP sends a telegram to the track and field coach at the time and says, you better give all of these girls an equal shot because... Louise and Tidy competed and they earned their spots. And so that is something. And, I, and then we come around to 1936, which ends up with all of this pressure. This is the real height of the Great Depression. The, these women all compete and they qualify in Providence. They arrive in New York City to board that ship for Berlin. And they're told, actually, We're only going to pay for the way of a few women. The rest of you can come, but you're going to have to raise $500 on your own to make this trip. Mind you, the men didn't have to do this. I mean, very few male athletes ended up having to do their own fundraising. But for the women, there was a lot of scrambling. And in the case of Tidy and Betty, they got really fortunate in the sense that their communities, their churches, they all pulled together to send them to Berlin. And then, of course, just the 1936... Olympics in Berlin are so interesting on so many levels, and these athletes all arrive and they're kind of stunned to find that Hitler is really using this Olympics as a real propaganda machine for his rising Nazi Socialist Party, and this is his big opportunity to not only show the world what he's creating, but also really get his own countrymen to buy into this concept of the Olympics, so a lot of pressure really on everyone.
0: I loved the part about the 1936 Olympics and Hitler and the, those portions of Hitler showing up and just kind of how all that was done. It was fascinating.
1: It really is. I mean, <laughs> he took a very hands-on approach <laughs> to the he Olympics.
0: Did, which I didn't really realize. I mean, I've obviously you know knew about the Olympics and you always hear about that particular Olympics and Hitler, but I didn't realize how hands-on he was.
1: Yes. I mean, and I mean that in all kinds of ways, because (laughs) he actually has an encounter with Helen Stevens. He really wants to meet her. He considers her a fine specimen of Aryan womanhood, invites her away for a weekend. I mean, this is this American woman from Missouri, this farm girl. It, It is just amazing. There was a constant sense of while everything was bright and shiny in Berlin, and Berlin was certainly putting its best foot forward. There were a lot of pretty dark things happening in the shadows. And and these athletes knew that. They could see it. They were experiencing it. So it creates a real tension within this experience of this high-flying Olympics with heavy political, social, all of these uh, pressures added to to the whole pot.
0: And I thought you did a great job of representing all of that, all sides of it. Like I felt like I was there and could understand there was an undercurrent, but that they were trying to present one facade while there was a lot of other stuff going on underneath the Olympic party. I think there was a party maybe some of the German officials had. So it was all fascinating. You did a great job. Oh, thank you. Representing all of that.
1: Well, those Olympic—I mean, I really was learning so much. There's so much to learn about those games, and the Nazis—they document everything. So I was able to read their official report that they create after is has all these photos. It has blueprints. So I mean, I could learn everything I wanted about the Olympics and more from their from what they put together. And then just there are all these accounts from other athletes. Many of women on the team created oral histories eventually. with their, So I was able to listen to all of those. And, and so I was able to piece together just this sort of complicated picture of Berlin. And really so much happened every day there that it really, I mean, you could have just set the entire story right there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was just going to say that. You really could have just had the 1936 Olympics as a story, but it was great to hear all of their backstories and understand how they got there and everything. But yes, it could be its own book. And my next question was going to be, how did you come up with the subject matter and did you do research? So you just addressed a little bit of your research, but how did all that get started? How did you focus on these women?
1: Right. Well, this is a funny one. I was actually just in the sort of in the beginning stages of starting a new book and it wasn't really working for me for a variety of different reasons. And my younger daughter was working on a project for her library class in fourth grade, she needed to pick a famous American to do a biography project on them. And she picked Gertrude Ederly. Now, I suspect you now know who Ederly is, because I think you read probably afterward in my book, but I had no idea who Gertrude Ederly is. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel. She was an American, a girl out of Brooklyn. She had competed in the 1924 Olympics in Paris and been very successful, had several medals under her belt took her two tries to cross the channel, but on her second, she did it. And she became what you know, President Wilson called her America's Best Girl. She came home to great fanfare and she really becomes an advocate for women swimming. And, and so she fascinated me. And there's a great nonfiction book by her, by Glenn Stout. And I became really interested in her, but I did feel like Glenn's book I'd read. My own daughter was a swimmer. I don't know much. I mean, I I love to swim, but I don't know much about competitive swimming. So I cast my net a little wider in the world of trailblazing women athletes. I am a tennis player still. I compete all the time. USTA League tennis. So I was interested in a tennis story, but I ended up finding these stories about these track stars. And now I had raced track in high school. I have run lots of various five, ten ks all these things through the year have done the marathon. I've run the Boston Marathon. So running is definitely something that I love. And I started digging in these stories and found Betty Robinson, then Louise Stokes, Tidy Pickett, and Helen Stevens. And I just knew this is the story for me. I love the Olympics. As a kid, I figure skated and like Peggy Fleming was my hero. (laughs) I mean, I've been a long time Olympic fan and had so many different fantasies about competing in the Olympics <laughs> myself, I finally realized, all right, I guess I'm now going to go to the Olympics as a novelist. I'm going to go to three different Olympics. i mean, imagine these. And so that's really what happened. As I started researching, I, I really, kind of the scope of the story, I really wanted to start in 28 when Betty first gets this opportunity to race in Amsterdam. And then I really felt it runs through 36. These are really our pioneering women. Then the Olympics take a few, uh, we missed the next two Olympics because of World War II. So I felt like 32, and 36 were a distinct period upon themselves. And I mean, there are so many stories there and so many fascinating characters. I had plenty of work cut out for me. (laughs) And so my research, I think you're asking about research too. I mean, boy, I was reading everything, everything I could about the Olympics. I was also, there are some great nonfiction books about these women and biographies. I read those. I listened to these oral histories. I went to Missouri to visit the Helen Stevens collection. I got to hold her track shoes and read her handwritten diary from Berlin. That's so cool. It was, it was amazing. And I went to Malden, Mass. I'm from Massachusetts. I went to see this statue in Malden that's been dedicated to Louise. I was able to visit a few of the monuments I talk about and and find the old tracks that she ran on that have since been paved over. And they're in like a strip mall parking lot. And I have a picture of me kind of standing in this random parking lot, pointing at the <laughs> at these railroad tracks. You can just scarcely see. Um, I actually was just hearing somewhere that there is a a, a course in Mullen named the Louise Stokes Trail. I have not, I next time when I'm ever freed from just my home here in Seattle, I need to get out there and, and go for a run along there. That would be very satisfying. So I was able to kind of cobble this story together through all, oh, Northwestern, I was in touch with your alma mater, right?
0: That's what I was just gonna say. I yeah. was particularly partial to Betty because of the Northwestern connection because I went there and I have a daughter who's there now. So I absolutely loved reading all of that because you know having spent time there and I loved it. It was really fun to have the Northwestern Connection. I was surprised by it.
1: Oh yeah, that was really fun. I worked with this great archivist who sent me all kinds of great uh, school newspaper stories from um, Northwestern's school paper at the time. I mean, I was in touch with like archivists at the Thornton Historical Society in Chicago about Betty. They sent me her yearbooks, and so Glenn Stout. This is it. All comes back full circle. But Glenn Stout, the journalist who had written the book about Trudy Etterly. He had also written a couple of articles about Louise Stokes. So I managed to track him down. He now lives in Vermont. And he was gracious enough to send me this gigantic file he had created about Louise um, from these old library these old newspapers on microfiche at the Malden Public Library. So he was generous enough to send me his file. He allowed me to copy it. So he was a great contributor to some uh, some primary sources for me. He had at one point interviewed some family members of Louise's. So really, um, I got so much help from librarians and archivists and it was, it was such a, an awesome adventure.
0: Well, that's so funny that you mentioned Gertrude Etterly because I was just sitting in on a Susie Orman Schnall event about the actual World's Fair and the grounds. And there's a pavilion that's still there, a little kind of snack shop that has her name. And they were talking about her. And I was not familiar with her until I heard that. And I know you and Susie have an, an event together and then are doing our event together in September. But it's just funny how there's a, a decent amount of overlap in your books. And then again, you know, a person I'd never heard of in twice in one day now.
1: Well, we even have more overlap than that. We actually have two characters in common. Um, We have Eleanor Holm, who was an Olympian in 28. Gosh, I need to double check this, but maybe 32. Definitely, she's on her way to Berlin for 1936 when she... gets in trouble with the American Olympic officials and is actually kicked off the team uh, in a really sexist way because she gets in trouble basically for partying too much while all the men all carrying flasks around all the time. They're gambling. I mean, it was really such a double standard, but she kind of gets the last laugh by getting a job as a reporter and showing up in Berlin anyway. And so she is in Susie's book. And then Johnny Weissmuller also gets a few mentions in my book and he shows up in Billy Rose's Aquacade show. So actually that was an early thing that Susie and I had connected on that our books had a few people in common.
0: I love that. And I think that will make great events. I'm excited for our event in September to be able to kind of talk about them and talk about both books. Great. Thank you so much. What do you hope your readers take away from this book?
1: Boy, that's such a good question. I mean, I really, I hope they are surprised by so many different things. So many things I think we take for granted. The idea of just going out for a run, which many of us are doing now that gyms have been closed and all that kind of thing. That is a hard fought path that these women really paved the way for us because women exercising, that was really frowned upon for so many reasons. I mean, everything from your uterus could fall out to you could develop a beard and a mustache. potentially. These were the things that people believed and argued about. But these women really were so tenacious, they weren't to be deterred, and I think there's so much to learn from that. And also, I hope they see that there is still so much progress to be made. I mean, the Olympics still do not have an equal number of events available to men and women. Still more women could be in leadership roles in the Olympics. And then just beyond the Olympics, even coaching, pay benefit All of these things that we are handed out to male athletes are much harder to come by for many women athletes, as we all know. I mean, that's in the news. But I really hope that we see much more progress in in sports teams, media coverage. The media coverage, I wrote all these newspaper stories for this book, partly to show how the media talked about these women in the 20s and 30s. And there's still a lot, a long way to go for how we talk about women athletes as opposed to men. So I, I guess my number one thing, of all of that jumble of things I hope readers take away. It really is the tenacity of these women. And, and, and I hope that people are inspired by them.
0: Oh, I'm sure they will be. I was just amazed. You include so many fascinating details and stories, and I think definitely people will learn a lot, but also be inspired.
1: Good. I hope so. I'm a former high school teacher, so I always take it as the ultimate compliment when someone says, oh, I love this. I had so much fun learning. But I was learning, and I always, I'm like, ha, ha, I always try to be tricky with <laughs> trying to educate people whether they know it or not.
0: Well, that's what I love about historical fiction, because you are being educated, but you don't feel like you're reading some long tome that is so dry. You know, instead, you're learning a ton and, and enjoying it while you do it. Good. I'm so glad. I hope so. How did you come up with the title to Fast Girls?
1: That is such a funny one. I knew the title right away and this is just the title I just knew it. And I know that there's been some kind of talk about just girls is it included in too many titles? I didn't even care. This one was all about fast girls and I liked kind of the play on fast because these women were considered I mean they were a bit morally objectionable in the opinions of us at the time. And so I did want that kind of double play on on fast but but yes, these were the fastest women in the world.
0: Well, and the reviews are so fun to read because reviewers have been so clever in their terms <laughs> and using the different running and the track. And was I was enjoying reviewing them before we were talking today, and I was like, people are so clever.
1: <laughs> oh, good! I, I that is fun. I mean, I love a good play on words. And I, I when I was working on this, I took a workshop here in Seattle at Hugo House with Lauren Groff had come to town, and she did this whole exercise on structure and what is the structure. Of your book. And she really introduces structure in a very fluid sort of new way to me. And I really realized this book was taking on the form of its actual content in the sense that it is a relay. I mean, there are these three main characters and they are running through the story, passing the baton off to each other as each story goes to the next storyteller. So that was a really fun way for me to picture this book. So at its heart, form is kind of following function here.
0: (laughs) I love that. I hadn't even thought about it that way. Do you have a say in what your cover looks like or did you have something in mind for this one? How did that all come about?
1: Oh, thats I always love talking about covers. This was a cover that totally surprised me. I, I had no idea what was coming, but this is my third book now with Morrow and they have treated me, I feel, very well with covers. I love the covers of my book. And, and this was one they sent to me I was away for a weekend, actually on a book event for Learning to See, my second book. And it showed up on my phone is where I first saw it. And I just, I just knew I loved it at the first look. The only thing that changed a little was the lighting. The first version was much brighter blue sky. And they darkened it a little, I think, to show the sort of pending, the clouds we know are coming in with the 30s. And I believe two. Yes, I'm just looking at the cover behind me. They added a few Nazi flags. They're very faint in the distance. We didn't really, we all kind of decided we just didn't need to give more airtime to the Nazi flag, but they are there faintly in the background just because these women on my cover are looking out at the stadium in Berlin. And and so that needed to be added. But yeah, I really felt they got this cover so right. I mean, I can tell exactly who the women are on the cover. I, I always felt it was really, I was thrilled by it.
0: I think they do a great job with their covers. They, they pay attention to what the story's about, represent it well, especially their historical fiction, but really all of their covers. I think yeah. they stand out in that way.
1: I know. And you know, I've now gotten to the point where I can always tell a Morrow cover from a distance without even a few of the, like the PS little thing on the corner. I can always tell because they really do make very elegant looking books, I would say.
0: I totally agree. And I had not noticed the Nazi symbols. So now I'm going to have to go pull my cover out and look when we're done.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm kind of glad to be honest that they don't jump right out at you.
0: (laughs) Now, I know you are actually, but I will ask you, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to tell us about?
1: I am. Thanks for asking. Actually, uh, just was acquired by, again, I'm, I'm staying with Maro. My new book is about these nurses who were right at the beginning of World War II as Pearl Harbor is being bombed. At the same time, the Japanese Imperial Army was invading the Philippines, where the Ameri- we had a great presence. And so this was a story I really didn't know anything about. But these nurses were then swept up in eventually the American defeat in the Philippines. And they're held as POWs for three years and it's such a remarkable story because all of these women survived their captain decided that the best way she could ensure the survival of these women was to keep them working so every day even as their clothing even as their material started deteriorating more and more they were working they set up their own hospital in their internment camp and they treated people for the duration of the war and so really they felt like nursing saved them and it's just it's it's a It's an amazing story. I mean, I didn't know much, honestly, even about the Philippines. I managed to sneak in a trip, a research trip, right before the world sort of started shutting down. I went there for the final two weeks of February and came back on February 29th, which was the same day that here in Washington state, they announced a state of emergency. So it, the timing was so crazy. It is a fascinating story. It's a beautiful setting. I mean, it just the tension between a war in this beautiful place is, is so interesting. And then I came to it because my own grandfather fought in the Pacific during World War II, and I wanted to know more about what he had done there. He was never in the Philippines, but as I started digging around, I, discovered the story about these women who are now known as the angels of Batan, And I knew this was, I knew this was my story.
0: Um, I remember you talking about it before and it sounded so fascinating. And I don't know nearly as much about that, Theater of the War, either. We went to Hawaii a couple of years ago and toured Pearl Harbor and learned a lot more than I ever knew about it. That'll be fascinating. I can't wait to read it. Do you have a time yet for when it's coming out, or is that too far off?
1: I don't yet. I'm still working on it, still writing. At the moment, it's called Beware the Quiet Ones. And I don't know, we'll see. My guess, honestly, just with the dates, I think it'll probably be out in early 22. Maybe. And, you know, I think nurses on the front lines are a really important story these days. Obviously, we're living that in these critical times. And, you know, I, I don't think that is going away anytime soon. So I'm looking forward to celebrating the, these women who are so important. And they were a really big deal when they first came home in the 40s. And I think what I'm defining when I'm telling people about it is that I think a lot of people have forgotten about the angels of the town. So I'm excited.
0: Yes, I'm not familiar with them. So I'll look forward to reading that.
1: Great. Thanks, Cindy. Share something your readers wouldn't know about you. Oh boy! Well, I guess if you follow me on Instagram, you know I'm a knitter, but I do love to knit. I also play a lot of tennis—arguably, sometimes too much tennis. (laughs) What? Oh, and I'm a terrible cook. I was actually just fired from my family for making dinner, which I consider a huge
0: win. I was (laughs) like, I wish I would be fired from my family for cooking dinner. I'm not a great cook. (laughs) <laughs> well, I do have that part down. So I maybe I'll just need to say, guess I just heard about a friend of mine who got fired from her family and give them the idea.
1: I know. Well, I have two daughters and they're both pretty bored these days. So they've done a fair a lot of baking. Oof, and now they're they're quite into cooking. So they're saving my skin a bit in in that arena.
0: We've been doing a lot of takeout. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, I've absolutely loved interviewing you. And I'm gonna wrap up with our last question, which will be tell me about two of your favorite recent reads or books you'd like to recommend.
1: Ooh, I'm so excited to talk about these. The first I have, it's called The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek. And this was talk about an sort of unknown story. I mean, I feel like a few years ago there were there was a article, um, is it Atlas Obscura had this story about these, the Pack Horse Library Project in Kentucky, uh, and these women library librarians, I think there were some men too, who rode around the really rural areas delivering books to people who needed them in Appalachia. This book is fascinating. It taught me so much. Uh, it opened up a whole new part of the world to me that I did not know about. And, and it's just beautifully written. I was really inspired. I mean, this whole idea of these blue-skinned people, I didn't know anything about that. I highly recommend this one.
0: That was one of my favorite books last year. I absolutely loved it. And I've told so many people about it. She did a great job combining two little-known things, the blue skin and the traveling librarians, the pack horse librarians. And I just thought it was a fabulous read.
1: I do too. I couldn't agree with you more. And I actually think it's so relevant to us right now. Issues about race, um, even issues of isolation. Yeah, and I think it's always important to get to know our own country and other parts of it, because I'm from New England, I feel pretty well versed in, you know, revolutionary history and that part of the world. And now I live in the West, and I kind of shifted around here in the West a bit. But Kentucky was a whole new ballgame to me. So boy, I really enjoyed this one. I'm, I'm really glad Kim Michelle Richardson is shedding a light on this fascinating story. And then the next one I have is called Real Men Knit. Now I'll admit, I haven't read this one. It's by Quana Jackson yet. The cover is gorgeous. It's so bright and fun looking. I am a big fan of fun books these days. And I just I am a knitter. I can't wait to read a, a story set in a knitting store. I just think there's so much here. There sounds like there's great family dynamics. Anything again where the characters are, I have a feeling you don't need to know anything about knitting to enjoy this story, but of course it will appeal to my knitter side. I really am looking forward to this.
0: I have read it and I absolutely loved it also. And I don't know much about knitting, but she did a great job. There's four brothers that were all adopted and they were raised by this woman. And so then she's gone and they're now trying to take the store on and figure out what to do. And I just thought it was a great, great book. I really enjoyed it.
1: Oh, good. And you know, someday, Cindy, when we ever talk, I'm going to try to stump you with a book you haven't read.
0: <laughs> but for now, I'm glad you've read both the books I'm talking about. Well, that's funny that you say that because the last couple of interviews I've done, people have mentioned books I'd never heard of and I was having to go look them up. So I was like, oh, yay, I have actually read these <laughs> books today. <laughs> so uh, you and I just must line up in our taste for what we read.
1: I think we do. I feel like whenever I read your articles where you're highlighting books, you're always picking some that I've kind of just heard about and I'm dying to read more on.
0: I always trust your judgment. Oh, well, that's very nice. Thank you. Well, thank you for agreeing to be interviewed today. And I hope everyone will pick up Fast Girls and actually pick up Learning to See also. I loved that when it came out so, about Dorothea Lang. So thank you again for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to connect. I mean, I miss people these days and I I love talking with readers. So thank you for giving me the opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Thoughts From a Page podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast and tell all your friends about the Thoughts From a Page podcast. I would really appreciate it. Elise's book, Fast Girls, can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time. The link is in the show notes. And Elise and Susie Orman-Schnall will be joining Conversations from a Page, our literary salon, in September on Zoom. If you'd like to join, please go to our website, cfapage.net, and sign up. We'd love to have you. It'll be a very fun event. Thanks, as always, to KP Regan for the sound editing, and thank you so much for listening.